0: Today's Bible verse, 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 13. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons. If they prove themselves blameless, their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the Word of God.
1: We are in a series, a new series, called The Household of God, and uh, we're going to be looking at this passage. We're going to be looking at this text, 1 Timothy chapter 3, um, for at least three more weeks. And... What we'll do is today I'm going to teach you on something which I hope you don't think is uh, uninteresting. Um, I want to teach you about the structure of the church and particularly about how leadership is structured um, in our church and in our denomination and how that's drawn from the Bible. And so last week I opened up the series from the bottom portion, the latter portion of this chapter um, where it says the church it's the house of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's in First uh, Timothy chapter 15, um, and then we get to that's that's how it's said. And what I taught you was that a household is a family plus a structure. You can even not be a blood relative, but if you're a part of the structure of how that family gathers and does life together, that's a household. A household is a family plus structure, and so we're in the season where we as a new church, as a church plant, um, in order to become a fully mature church, we must raise up, you know, the leaders that will then structure God's household. And so this series is specifically geared to train you as a church how to think about that from the Bible. So what we're going to do today is we're going to do a first around at looking at this text, and I particularly want you to focus on, on the first half, which is what we were talking about. Here it's it's described as the overseer. And this is what we mean. It, this is usually where we take the term elder. And so we're really going to focus on the elder. I'm not going to give too much attention to the passage on the deacon. Um, not because it's not important. I just wanted you to see it and hear it in, in, in today's message. But really what we're going to do is focus on the qualifications of the elder, and I want to give you just today a first understanding just of the structure of the church itself, okay, and how we are, how thus the structure makes up God's household, okay. <laughs> Hope that wasn't too, uh, blah blah sounding, all right. Three parts. Part one proven character is the key in the church leader, okay. Proven character is the key. The church leaders. So, what is the core? What is the core again and again? Emphasize again and again. It isn't how smart he is or what school he went to or like how much money he owns. None of that is in the Bible. What's important is character and, particularly, as as we're going to go over, proven character. Okay? Part two Presbyterianism is accountable team shepherding. So, today I'm going to teach you about what it means to be Presbyterian, okay? I know that that's not, that's not like, I know you're like, oh, I'm jumping up and down to learn about this, but it's actually tremendously important. And a lot of times people think it just sounds some old, traditional kind of sounding word that they don't understand. Presbyterian, what is that? I'm going to explain it to you, but right now I just want you to understand that the core idea is accountable team shepherding, okay? And then I want to close by sharing the gospel um, by Part three I'm going to call leading by sacrificially obeying. Sounds like somebody? I hope it's somebody that you know, okay? Leading by sacrificially obeying. So um, let's get into today's passage, chapter three. And here's how it starts. Chapter three, verse one. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So let me say that If anyone aspires to so the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And then you get what the overseer is supposed to be like. So just, let's just go over a little bit of this. And I'm going to go over this some more in detail in a couple of weeks. But just, I want you to get a kind of, just a first uh, look at this, because I want us to look at this multiple times. So, therefore an overseer must be above reproach The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. So then it goes on. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Let's just stop there for a moment. Um, what do we want in an elder? So the over the term here, overseer. Let's just says, didn't say elder, pastor. It said overseer. Um, the word there in the Greek is episkopos. Right? The word there's epis, episkopos. If the person, if there's one who desires, who aspires to the office of the episkopos, he desires something that is really, really noble, and. Um, so what we have in the Bible are certain different meanings for the leader. So different Greek words have been used for the Greek word here in this context. This is really one of the classic passages on the Bible on what is the qualifications of the elder. And the Greek term is episcopus, But I just want to give you an idea of like how the Bible uses this terminology. Um, in the New Testament, this term episcopus is used about five times. And it's typically translated something like this. Um, overseer. Um, some denominations like to, to call this person the bishop. And, but the more common term, the more common term for the elder is presbyteros. All right, sounds, here here, where are, we getting, where are we getting this weird word, presbyterian? It's presbyteros. And it's not like those words are kind of like used um, evenly. Episcopus is used about five times but presbyteros is used 70 plus times throughout the New Testament. So that's actually the much more common word. And that word is generally translated elder. It has the connotation that the person is older. But I think the idea is less older in age than really older in faith. That's really what it's about. It's more mature in faith. So here you, know, you can see where that qualification is from. He, he must not be a recent convert, verse 6. So he can't have been a Christian for a short period of time. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. It's pretty interesting. It isn't just, um, you don't want a person who only been a Christian for a short time to be your leader because, well, you know, the guy should have been a Christian longer. No, but because there actually is very real and spiritual danger for that reason. So the term elder, I think, is much more not about like, the person has to be at least 60 years old or something like this. In certain Asian churches, they, that's totally what they think. They always think that the elder has to be an old, old man, so to speak. But that isn't really um, actually true. Our denomination, actually, um, the minimum age to be an elder is relatively young. It's about 30. Now, that, that's a pretty exceptional person to become an elder you know, in his early 30s. And probably you would probably want the person to at least be in his late 30s And probably about 40. But that's not really an old person. Um, It's not really an old person. But a person could have been mature in the faith. And not be a recent convert if you're in your late 30s. Um, So it just gives you an idea. Now, so this is where we're talking about the elder. Now, this is where we get this term presbyteros. Is where the Greek word presbyteros, elder. Is where our denomination is actually named after. The, The denomination... It's just a weird word uh, to name a denomination because it's the structure of the way we lead. Our church is led by elders. It's led by a team of elders. And our denomination believes in this structure. And I'm going to get at that in just a moment. But before I get to that, which I'm going to like address more in part two, and I want to talk a little bit about more, some of the disagreements on the way um, different Christian churches have handled church structure and the household of God, but... The thing I really want to get across here is this. In this passage, the main thing, I'm not going to go over each and every... I'm going to go over um, these in more in detail in, 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 a, in an upcoming message, but I want you to get the flavor of this. It doesn't just say that he's a righteous person, or he's a person who goes, who goes to church a lot, or is a nice person, we all know that he's a nice and kind person, and you know he's super faithful to church. It doesn't say that, right? A lot of times we'd all like to think that, like, we know what a good person is like, right? But the Bible makes it very specific. And it's about character, and it's about character that's proven over time. So listen to things like this. Um, it has to be sober-minded. That it has to be self-controlled and not, um, and not quarrelsome, but gentle. You're wanting to see a quality that's over time. Of a man who is the husband of one wife, you should actually see something about the quality of his marriage. And if he's married, it doesn't say you have to be married, but if he is married, if he is married, he can only be the husband of one wife. In other words, he shouldn't be a person who's been like getting divorced. This is interesting too, it doesn't, and it's, he can't be a polygamist because in this time... This is really, really interesting. If you just think about this in this context, a person may have had more than one wife, but it's very interesting that here at this time, it says, nope, you can only have one wife. And in this passage, it says other things too. Um, it says things like, um, where it says the husband of one wife, the explicit words are actually the man of one woman. That's actually the way it's said in the Greek, the man of one woman. Um, some pastors says, literally, it says the the elder must be a one-woman man. Let's put it that way. And I think it's more than just that he, should, he shouldn't be a polygamist. It should be he's faithful to that woman. You understand? He's not constantly... So there's also the idea that he is not only broken his marriage, not only got multiple wives, but he's not this person that's... He's really, really faithful to his wife. It's a one-woman kind of man. That is a character quality that's proven. You can, you can see that over time. So I'm not trying to get into all the details of it here right now, but I want you to get this sense. It is, a pers- it is a character that is proven. So how about this? Verse 4, he must manage his own household well. So what is this? You want to see if a person... So this is really, it's very interesting that the term there is manage his own household. The person could be single actually, but you could be the leader of your household even though you're single. It's, it's, an interesting, it's, an interesting, um, it's an interesting piece. Usually they're married, usually the head of the household, and so let's say you're the boss of your household. So it doesn't just simply mean he's a good father. A person may be the manager of the, the term there is oikos, and the household could be, you could have a large household. So if you are more, let's say if your family owns an estate and you have servants in your household and you have to watch after all your property and your family business, the, the person who leads that, that is the person who has to manage that. So it's actually not just simply, is he a good husband? Is he a good father? Does he lead his household? And so again, it's a question of not just Well, the guy has good intentions and we know the person is really likes church and is really into Jesus and knows a lot of Bible. It doesn't even say that. Hmm. It's really interesting. And of course you want him to be able to handle the scriptures because it says that he has to be able to teach. And particularly he has to be able to teach the Bible. So we want to know the Bible pretty well, but you don't want a person who's just got tons and tons of like head knowledge but hasn't been able to translate the biblical knowledge to be able to lead other people, his household, in such a way, in a peaceful way that they willingly are willing to submit to him in terms of his character. See, see the picture here? So it's not just character. It's absolutely, it's proven character over time. And so let me say something to you right now. Um, so, you know, we are, which, why do you need to learn this stuff? Aren't the pastors going to just be able to just figure out who they think because they're the ones who know what the Bible is. Aren't the pastors really the only people who are going to just know who the elders are and then they'll just pick the pastors? No, it's not the way our system works. If you are a member of Revive, you have been covenant to our church and you are a member of our church, you are called to prayerfully consider who you would like to nominate as a possible elder. As somebody to shepherd you, and have God-given authority over your life. So I'm saying this to you now because starting from this week on, I'm calling the whole church here now, we as, our, as your pastors, we're calling on you to go into a season of serious prayer and consideration and to think about all the important men in our church, all the men in our church, and, and consider who is qualified to be an elder in, according to the Bible. And we're gonna then open up a time. We're gonna send out something to you, if you're, uh, you know, to our, our all our um, all our members. And you're going to get a sheet. And at a certain time, we're gonna have a, a period where you can nominate somebody. And we, this is not a secret ballot. You have to put your name on this. Okay? You're gonna put your name on this because if you, this is not like well I just like this person. There's there's nothing political about this. It's completely not like an election. Like. In our politics, secret ballot, and you have no idea why we voted for this person versus that person. It's just all about your self-interest, or hate these people, or all the, the strange and you know political reasons people like to do. Um, you know, you know, choose a certain kind of leader it has nothing to do with that. We want you to have your name on there, and then we want you to prayerfully consider before God, and have your own responsibility before God, and consider who you would willingly like to see shepherd in our church, along with the pastors, and, and this is important. And this is also a part of why this, is, why this proven character is such an important, why it's such a key issue inside of leadership. Because whoever becomes our elders, we want you to willingly, this is important, willingly want to submit to them and follow them. Let me say it again. You would want to follow these men and say that if they say, hey, we need to follow Jesus together, when they put their heads together and say, our church is going to go in this direction, we believe the Holy Spirit has chosen them and led them to be, to be the shepherds of our church, that you would say, you know, their character, their godliness, their, their handling of the Bible, they are proven leaders and I want to follow them. I want to trust in them. So, these are all the reasons I want you to be considering. And um, so what we're going to do is we're going to raise up a team of shepherds. So our church isn't just going to be only led by pastors. So the pa- we're going to have pastors and elders. But, you know, in our nomination, really, the pastors are just it's another version of elder. In our nomination, the pastors are called the teaching elders. And then the, the laymen who are not like, you know, who, who, who don't do this for a living They're called the ruling elders. And really, they're just two different kinds of elders. And that together, they're the overseers. They're the shepherds who lead our church and have authority from God. And we're going to have a team of those people. And that's called Presbyterianism. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. Now, let's go to part two. Let's go to part two. And what I want to do in part two is... Go over something that, if you if you recently took, say, membership class, if you're a relatively new member of our church, you may this you, this will hopefully this will hopefully be, um, you know, you you'll remember this content. But um, if you've even never taken membership class, uh, you you may have never uh, you may have you may have never um, heard this, and uh, I hope this will be really helpful and interesting to you. Um, what I'm going to do is teach you a little bit about Presbyterianism, and specifically about our denomination. Okay, and so what I'm going to do is go through some of the key content that we give the new members about how our church is structured. In our day and age, people just go. There's non-denominational churches, and there's you know like I just like the pastor, and I just like the music, but nobody thinks about how is the leadership structured, which is actually because that's actually tremendously important in how the church works, and it's tremendously important. When things don't go right, and guess what? What's the chances that something won't go right inside of a church? 100%, okay? In every organization, there's always going to be some time when things start to grind. And so you need to have some idea of like, how is the church structured and how will the leadership handle things when things don't go well? And there is a particular way and, and, and wisdom, which I believe is really, really good from the Bible, in Presbyterianism. So let me let's start getting into this. So, you um, know, I'm going to share some uh, or some slides, and so you can go ahead and look up there. And I hope you can see this um, if you're if you're watching this from home. So first, let me say a few points. Um, Revive is a member of the Presbyterian Church in America, the Presbyterian Church in America, and you know that's the the, the, the initials are PCA. You can go to that website, pcanet.org, and you can learn all about it. And so I'm not going to you know, unpack everything. But that's the name of our denomination. So sometimes if you hear the term PCA, that's what we're talking about. When we say we're Presbyterian, that's the specific denomination we belong to. There are actually a lot of Presbyterian denominations. Um, the Probably the best well-known one in America is the largest one called the Presbyterian Church USA. And we don't belong in that denomination and sadly to say, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to go out of my way to, like, knock that denomination. But over the years, they've become incredibly unbiblical. And so, um, you know, our denomination is much more, we really go out of our way to be very biblical. And, and in so many ways, I consider our denomination kind of the more, you know, the long-standing kind of Presbyterians that have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, okay? And so that's the name of our denomination, the PCA. And I just want to say a little something about it. This is the um, the unofficial motto of our denomination. And so this just you want to have a little idea of what we what our, our denomination kind of hangs its hat on, and it's this faithful to the scriptures, true to the reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. So, number one, so just let's just say, just, I just unpack that a little bit. First, we're all about the Bible. Absolutely. Always, always, always about the Bible. Two, we understand the Bible through the Reformed faith. And so, just a little history lesson. Um, in the Middle Ages, in Europe, the church today, which we would call the Catholic Church, became incredibly doctrinally corrupt and po- politically corrupt, quite frankly. And the church was really in a bad p- bad place. And so this back-to-the-Bible movement started it's famously called the Reformation. And those people who wanted to reform the Bible, reform the church back to the Bible, they were called the reformers. And a vision of biblical faith to run the church became called reformed theology or reformed faith. So we fall in that line of thinking about the Bible. And over the, to- over the years, very, very brilliant and very, very godly and faithful men have studied the Bible very intensely and deeply. And so just the wisdom of the Bible have been handed down faithfully um, through through this reformed faith or, or the reformed theology. And so that's kind of that's that's a strand of theology that's it's always again always going back to the Bible, 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 right? And at the center of the Bible, of course, is the gospel in Jesus Christ. So the third one is obedient to the Great Commission. And I love this part of it too, because a church, sometimes a church can just get stuck and it starts like becoming navel-gazing and it always thinks it's about himself and it's always trying to like uphold a tradition. It's like we got to hold on to our religion. That is not the spirit of the Bible. The spirit of the Bible is not holding on to our religion. It is spreading the gospel, calling forth people to come to know Jesus Christ by grace through faith. So this is, these are the big these are the big points of our denomination. And we are very, very glad that this is what, in our denomination, our church, if, if, you are, if, you, if you've been a revive for you know, very long, you could see this is our, all these things are very true of our church. Highly biblical. This is the way we, you know, t- the, the type of theology you're getting is this very rigorous biblical theology. And as you notice, we're always, always about the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. Okay, so let me tell you a few other things about our denomination. We started in 1973 and it was started um, with about 260 congregations. So it wasn't really big, but not small. 260. And really, what it was, it was a break off from the larger Presbyterian denomination, which I mentioned before, because their doctrine was sliding away from the Bible. So a group said, let's start a new denomination so our, um, our doctrine can go back to the Bible. And it was started in 1973 with 260 congregations. And at the time, there were about 41,000 members. And so that's, that's the way it was, you know, what? Almost, not quite 50 years ago, but today there's 1,600 churches, 88 presbyteries, which I'll explain to you in just a moment, all right? 5,000 pastors, 380,000 members all across the country. So 380,000 is, um, you know, I don't know if, what, how you would think about that. That's not a, a huge denomination, but neither are we small. We truly are a national denomination, and we're growing, and we're planting new churches and Revive, we're, we're another example. We're the latest church plant of our presbytery. And so um, it's a little picture of, of, uh, of our denomination. Now now let me teach you about, let's get back to this issue of how we do structure and leadership. The PCA is a presbyterian denomination that has a representative form of government. Do we get that? Yes. It's a representative form of government. So, if you want to have some basic understanding of what's Presbyterian, the first thing I'd like you to do is Presbyterian is elders. It's a team of elders. But if you want to know how it works, I want you to think of this as a representative form of government. And I want to give you um, kind of like a little bit of a, what I'll call a church polity lesson. Now, polity means the rules of how, how the church is governed, okay? So here's the basic. There are three basic options when it comes to polity in how you lead a church. And here's what they are: they are the episcopal, they are the congregational, and then they are the elder or the slash or the Presbyterian way of doing it. Those are the three basic ways. If you go around to churches, you know, whatever church they are, they are running one of these three playbooks on how they structure the church. So church Christians have not all agreed, they all know that 1 Timothy 3, that's the important passage. They know the Titus one. That's the important passage. But they have disagreements on like what does that term episcopus mean, and then how this should that look inside of the system. So here's, so here's what it's mean. So it says I, I put number two under there: monarchy, democracy, and representative government. Monarchy, democracy, and representative government. So when I said episcopal, congregational, and elder led, roughly speaking. The Episcopal way of, of of doing the church is monarchy. So, I'll give you examples of this. Um, the Catholic Church is the quintessential example. They have an Episcopal form of government, and they call they call this person the overseer. They call him the bishop, and. And it is a monarchy. If your local, if you're, you know, if the bishop of your uh, of your of your regional area says that I want to take out your pastor and replace that pastor with somebody else, you know what you can do? You can't do anything about it <laughs> because it's a monarchy. <laughs> and Episcopal is the, they have this idea of the bishop, and the bishop runs things. He, he 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 reigns. You could try to appeal to him, but if you, he doesn't change his mind, you that's it. You're flat out of luck. That's how it works. And it's not just the Catholic church. Um, The Methodists operate this way. So they're Protestant. Um, The Anglican church operates this way. Or the American version of the Anglican church is called the Episcopalian church. And guess what? The Episcopalian church believes in bishops. So your church would have your own pastor, maybe that they might call a priest. But that guy answers to a bishop. And it's a total hierarchical top-down system. And that's why it's more like a monarchy. Does that make sense? That's actually the simplest one to understand. Um, a lot of churches that you see around here, especially if they're a Protestant church, they might operate in what's called a congregational model. And what it means is something like this. Every member has equal power and equal say inside the church. And every, if you are a member, you get a vote and your pastor only gets one vote like you. So the pastor doesn't get any more vote than you do. And so everybody's a member. And so this is actually, it's kind of like rule of the demos, you know. Demos is the Greek word for people. You know, kresi means the rule of, the rule of the people. And so congregationalism is just straight, like every person, it's, it's like a, it's a vote. So I think it's more like kind of like pure democracy in that sense. But here's the thing I want to offer you to you. If you have a church and everybody, it's like, it's considered like a flat structure but then you have a pastor, because you've got to have somebody teach the Bible, right? And so you have this regular person who has the pulpit. So in principle, the pastor doesn't have more power than everybody else, right? According to the principle of the governance. But in actual reality, the pastor absolutely has more power than everybody else. So what ends up happening in a kind of congregational system like this is that the pastor tends to have, I call it, a kind of backdoor monarchy. And so what are churches, some of the churches, are like a lot of Baptist churches operated like this. A lot of non-denominational churches have tend to operate like this. And so what happens is the pastor tends to, he has the voice that everybody listens to. And so he tends to have kind of outsized power and influence inside the church. And so you go to a church like this and if you don't like the way the pastor's going, you kind of are, you, you just kind of only have, you can appeal to him you can appeal to the people that influence him, maybe, but if he doesn't want to change his mind, and then you know the majority of the churches, that that's kind of the way the church is going to go. About the best, the way you can vote is only vote through your feet, in other words, leave the church, which isn't obviously always the best, a great solution, right? But here's where the beauty of Presbyterianism is, is that we believe in something more like representative government. In other words, you, the church, Together must participate. The Holy Spirit will shape and lead the whole church, including you as individual members. And then collectively, the Holy Spirit will lead us to pick certain men who we will then willingly submit to as our leaders. And then they will form a team that will be accountable to each other. Does that make sense? That's the Presbyterian way. So that's why if you are a member of our church, you have, to, this, you have to take this really, this is an incredibly important time in the history of Revive. It's, re, it's actually really hard to do this during this COVID season. And so we really felt like it was important that you learn this through the pulpit. But it's an incredibly important time in the selection of leaders and you get a say in this. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through a period where you get to nominate candidates all those candidates will be vetted by the pastors according to these 1 Timothy 3 standards. And then those candidates who are willing to accept, you know, accept that potential calling will then go through a lengthy training process, again, where the Holy Spirit will get a chance, we will get to see if the Holy Spirit will confirm or, you know, lead them. At some point, they might say, I don't think I'm ready for this. Or someone will say, you know, more and more, as we begin to say, the Holy Spirit will show us Do they have proven character, the proven character of the first Timothy three qualities to be the leaders and the shepherds that our church will willingly um, submit to? Now, let me say a last couple things about Presbyterianism. Um, The local church is governed by a session. That's the name of the team that governs the church and is comprised of elders, both the ruling elders and the teaching elders. It's, it's a group of pastors and ruling elders, or they're all elders, okay? And this is incredibly important. If it's the reason that you, you we must be led by a team is because I really, really believe in the Bible, okay? And one of the things the Bible teaches is that if you give a man power, at some point, Power tends to corrupt a person. A person always thinks he's right or even his righteousness, you know, a person overestimates their righteousness. A person regularly overestimates their wisdom. So you put more and more into one man and that that becomes a dangerous place. Pride tends to puff up. And then if you give him too much power, how can that power and pride and 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 if 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 you've listened to a lot of my preaching, a lot of our sin isn't just the quote-unquote bad things that we do. Our sin is in our righteousness. It's in the pride in our righteousness. And so one of the great wisdom of the Presbyterian system is that no one man can have all that much power and authority. He always has to operate in accountability to other godly men. And those other godly men form a check on any one person's power. Does that make sense? So I'm basically letting you know, I'm the lead pastor (laughs) and I'm letting you know our system checks my power. So if I ever become a total complete raving jerk who always thinks I'm right (laughs) and I'm going to just jam my influence and power because I got the pulpit most of the time, you know what? In our church, you always have a recourse. You just talk to the other elders and say, Susan, I'm kind of going crazy. Hello. (laughs) And It is their duty before God to say, well, yo, Susan, we need to talk to you. And then there's a check. and We can have a more serious conversation about how to get back on track right. And here's the other thing. It, it, It demands that the men walk together with humility, regularly listening to each other and trusting that none of them have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works through the other men too so that the shepherds of the church must be a set of, of, of a team. They have to be a team of fathers. They have to be a team of leaders. And they must think humbly toward each other and that, and when they disagree, and I promise you they will disagree, <laughs> they have to disagree humbly listening to each other to find a pathway of unity to bless the whole flock of God. That's, that's the intent. Okay? Now, one last point, and we'll get to the last portion of my message. Pastors and representatives of local churches um, in a region form a presbytery. So that's the name. So what's a presbytery? That's a group of the leaders of the presbyters, that is the elders, the called, ordained men, who are the shepherds, who form together, and then they govern all the, the, the local region of churches. That's what's called presbytery. So the reason I'm telling you this is, the name of our presbytery, by the way, is Revive is a member of the Northern California Presbytery. right? Northern California, I don't know how many churches there are, in our like 30-some-odd churches and 50-some-odd pastors or 60-some-odd pastors or so forth, and elders. And um, so the reason I'm telling you this to you is, Let's just say, you know, we end up with like four elders in the future. You know, like, like, it's like maybe like me and Pastor Young and we're like four elders. And so you're led by like six um, elders together, right? And then some of you start thinking like, you know, all those guys are like, they always agree with Susan, don't they? (laughs) Because they're his friends. they are like, they're, you know, they work, they walk together this way. And so you start thinking there's something really wrong inside the church, but you don't think the elders will listen. Or you tried, you talked to the elders And then they said that they took it up to session and the session didn't really seem to be listening to this concern. Let's say the the concern you have is very serious. What if it has something to do with some kind of abuse in the church? Or you think there is some kind of doctrinal corruption going on in the church. Those are like two of the most common things that you might want to consider um, to thinking about to protect the church. Abuses from leadership and uh, doctrinal corruptions. You know what you could do? You could just call up one of the other elders, well, the other leaders in the presbytery and they are duty-bound to come check it out and say, hey, we think our pastor's teaching bad doctrine or we think our elders are not handling an abuse situation inside of our church in a godly biblical way. Could you come and investigate? And you know what? They're duty-bound to do so. So again, All these forms of checks and of accountability. So let me get back to that point. Presbyterianism is accountable team shepherding. That's what it is. And I want to just say a personal word. Um, I've grown up, I grew up in a Presbyterian setting. And um, Presbyterianism isn't always the easiest way to do church. Um, the downside of Presbyterianism is you have this team of people who lead, and so they if you have a major decision, it can never happen on a dime. There's nothing efficient about it. you got to get those six men together. They're going to discuss it. It might take them a while to hash it out. And so if you're impatient and you want something that big to happen inside the church and you think it needs to happen next week, it's not going to work in Presbyterianism that way. Presbyterianism takes deliberation. It takes a seeking of the Holy Spirit together. It takes patience. And so it is deliberately an inefficient system. You're hearing me? It is deliberately an inefficient system. But let me tell you something. Over the years, I've, I've, I've been in non-denominational churches. I've seen churches that use kind of congregational methods. That, And of course, I know there's lots of abuses in like episcopal type settings. I'm absolutely convinced that you can't give any one man that much power. And it's really really good that all the men have to learn how to be humble and accountable to the Bible and to each other. And though even though it's kind of inefficient and can be kind of a frustrating system in that way, it tremendously protects the church. And it gives you the brothers and sisters a lot more a sense of ownership and say when we when we run our household in this way. Okay? Now let me close this message because we're a gospel-centered church and so far I haven't really preached the gospel. (laughs) I've really kind of just told you some wisdom about what the leader should look like, but all throughout this passage, 1 Timothy 3, even though the gospel isn't explicitly said, oh, it's there, oh, it's there. And let me tell you why. Because, so let's just say a little something about where our culture is at. Right now, our culture really believes that leaders basically operate through power or rules. And usually, some combination. There's rules, you know, they're like, that's how we gotta have lawyers. And then the lawyers duke it out over the rules, and they have fine tuned those rules. And then some people know how to manipulate those rules to push their power forward. And then, of course, those who can manipulate and amass more money or more followers or whatever, they have power. And so, so much of our society today. This is what leadership is thinks. Whoever's got more power, that's the leader. Whoever like is got inside the legal structure, inside the rules, that's the leader, right? But that is not what the way the Bible looks at it. The Bible looks at it in a different way. That Jesus isn't the one who rules us because there's just a bunch of like rules that say he's the leader. And he did not amass lots of military power or money power. Or, you know, popularity. That's not how he he led us. You know how he came to be our leader and our shepherd? And this is really interesting. He came to be our leader through sacrificial obedience. That's how he came to be our leader. He was first the best follower. And he was first a son. His father's God... And God is the one who really is the true, the ultimate leader of of the purposes of God. And then the son of God, I know many of you tend to think of him primarily as the son of God, the divine son of God, and that's perfectly fine. But I want you to think of him not just as the divine son of God, but the divine son of God who humbled himself and made himself powerless. He was born in a manger, remember? His birth is the story that we all know, Christmas. And he had no power. He was dirt poor. He didn't have lots of followers (laughs) in his social media feed. The Son of God came this way. And he became a king this way. And the way he would become king is to obey God unto utter powerlessness and weakness And that obedience of love and of servanthood is how he became the shepherd and king over the church. And so, you know, Philippians chapter 2 says that it was that he made himself, you know, he became like nothing. He humbled himself even to that of the cross. He humiliated himself even to that of the cross. And then it says, because of that, God has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. You want to know what leadership looks like in the Bible? It looks like that. And when you look at all these qualifications of the elder, you know what's all there is in one way or another? It's saying, here is basically what it's saying. The man that you want to be your elder, he should try to be like Jesus. His character should be like Jesus. He should seek to... Lead like Jesus. And you know how he seeks to lead? Through obedience. First and foremost, he's an obeyer. He wants to obey. We want leaders and shepherds who are first obeyers of God through God's word, because Jesus was first an obeyer. And he would take on a cross and he would take on cost. And um, so brothers and sisters. You know, I, I, I am, I'm always really humbled that you would listen to me as your pastor and receive my leadership as your shepherd. And of course, I'm not the only you know, shepherd in our church. You know, young, young's a really good shepherd. We're always incredibly humbled that you will, you will um, actually follow us. And we are, of course, you know, far from Jesus. <laughs> we are far from Jesus. But our heart is that we will obey. And when we fall down, you know what we do? We apply the gospel. We remember that we fall down. And our great leader, what he did was he obeyed so that the men who fall down would not just then beat ourselves up and go, okay, we fell down and we didn't always obey, Right but that we can be washed and we can come back to obey again and we can be forgiven and known that we obey again. And that first and foremost, what our church needs is constantly a leadership of repentance and obedience because that is how you will live and how you have great life in the household of God. That the grace of Jesus through his obedience, his obedience would start to become your obedience. And His grace that He allowed Himself to be powerless, we will trust that what looks so powerless in the world, because we're not winning you because so good looking, (laughs) and I've got such a great you know like popularity, or we got lots of money, but that you trust that what we are about is about Jesus, and that the Holy Spirit has shown you that we're something like that. What we want. Is a men, a set of men, a team? It's all about that. <laughs> and so really, what we want you to see is not who's Song or young or any of the men. We want a set of men that really, that even as imperfect and as broken as we are, that you will see the first obeyer, the first servant leader, the true servant leader, Jesus and that he would lead our whole church, that we would all be repentant servant obeyers and run out into the world. That's what the household of God looks like. So brothers and sisters, I hope um, this was more than interesting to you. I hope this was a blessing to you. And that you would pray that Revive would be this kind of church and that this spirit of this type of, of shepherding would spread throughout our country, certainly in our denomination. And, you know, other more and more non-denominational churches, they're going to an elder, they don't call themselves Presbyterians, but they're going to an elder teams, shepherding kind of model like this. And the wisdom of First Timothy 3 is really spreading. Would you pray for that? Would you seek that? And we'll treat that Jesus would be exalted, that the gospel would be at the bottom of the way, at the absolute power of the way we envision leadership. And maybe... Once again, this kind of humble, servant-obeying leadership could be noticed by our neighbors and our world. And a different and more helpful and peaceable vision of leadership could be offered to our neighbors. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus... We long to have elders, be shepherded by men who are like you. Lord, I always want to grow to be more that way. And I um, mourn, I grieve that of all the broken ways that I'm not that way. And I pray that, you know, we would have a set of men that regularly thinks of repentance as our first calling as leaders. And we would call our people confidently and boldly yet humbly to be in obeying and repenting because we are always in your grace. And we pray, Lord, that from here through when we can get to the chance that we have candidates and then we have training and then we have ordination, that you, Lord Jesus, would send your spirit upon our members and lead us to the men who are the right men, your men. And all of us will walk, and all of those men will walk, you know, not in some traditional religiosity kind of way, but always according to your scripture. And we would have a church that's not filled with politics or like, you know, like maneuvering or manipulating or like, you know, like using lies and rumors to gain power. But instead, power would always be used in servanthood. And our people, our church would be known as a church of great peace and tremendous unity and willing and joyful obedience, Lord, that together we obey you. And together we sacrifice because you first sacrificed for us. We sacrifice for each other, we sacrifice for you, and we sacrifice for our neighbors and our city because you first sacrificed for us. So make, revive this kind of church, and I pray that this word would go forward and nothing could stop it and turn us into this type of your household. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Amen.